Well, along the, the coast of Spain uh, stands a, a lighthouse that's, that was built by the, the Roman Empire nearly 2,000 years ago. The lighthouse is still there today, and it's called the, the Tower of Hercules. Now, not only is it still standing 2,000 years after that it was built, but it's actually still a working lighthouse today. It's still in use. Now, now think about all of the world events that have happened over the past 2,000 years, the wars that have been fought. Think of how many just storms in general that that lighthouse has endured over 2,000 years. Think of the, the empires which have risen and fallen over 2,000 years. The Roman Empire itself, which built that lighthouse, doesn't even exist any longer, and yet the tower still stands. What a, a picture that is of stability, uh, even just a, a picture to some degree of, of, of constancy, regardless of all the world events that are taking place around it. Now, Judges 9, our text today that Emily read, is a, is a picture of humanity's unfaithfulness. It, it's, a, it's a picture of humanity's unraveling, our recklessness, our brokenness, our, our proneness to idolatry and to forgetfulness of our God. And yet the text today also points us to God's covenant faithfulness, God's steadfast love, God's stability, and God's constancy uh, amidst humanity's wanderings. We see ourselves in the text today as those who are prone to wander, but more importantly, my hope today is we see a God who remains faithful to his people and as one who keeps his promises, one who is stable, one who is constant, one who is worthy of our worship, and one whom we must follow. The question we're going to be asking today as we work through the story of Abimelech and through the story of the people of Shechem is, is how can my heart remain uh, committed to the one true covenant-keeping God when I'm so inclined toward forgetfulness and toward wandering, toward idolatry? How can I stay committed and remember this one God who is worthy of my my following. And as we'll see, Abimelech and, and God's people, they've, they've strayed from God. This is really going to be the continual story as we work through Judges, the, a continual uh, spiral away from who he is. They've forgotten his promises. They've forgotten who he is, his nature, his character. They're, they've forgotten what he has done for them. They're no longer following him, and instead they're looking really to themselves, as we'll see, to provide for their own needs, to, to, to be their deliverer. And yet throughout the text, we're going to see woven through God's constant reminders to them of who he is. Here's what I've done. Here's how I'm, I've been stable. Here's how I'm your refuge. And they could see it too if they would have just stopped listened, opened their eyes to see him. We must stop and listen and see God for who he is and what he has done, lest we too begin to wander and to stray away from him. See, because God is a good and faithful covenant-keeping God, we should joyfully follow him. Judges 9 tells the story of a man named Abimelech. Now, We've been away from Judges for, for a little over a month or so. So just as a, a very quick refresher of where we've been, the last several chapters of Judges that we went through before we jumped into Advent during the month of December was chapters 6, 7, and 8. And those three chapters really told the story of, of a man named Gideon. Uh, Gideon, as one author described him, as this weak, mighty warrior. 
These chapters that we went through, chapters 6, 7, and 8, before we took a break from, from Judges, uh, trace the, the trajectory of Gideon's life from this man of weakness and cowardice really to, to one of strength and leadership as he was learning to rest more fully upon the might and the strength of God. And so Gideon's life had this trajectory upward. We started to see uh, a leader and what God was doing through him, yet and as chapter 8 began to come to a close, the last time we were in Judges, we started to see Gideon's slide, his decline. Him begin to, to stray once again from the goodness and the faithfulness of God. All of Israel, if you remember in chapter 8, came to Gideon after Gideon had delivered them through the power and the might of God from Israel's oppressors, the Midianites. And so all of Israel comes to Gideon and they say, you need to rule over us. Be our king. Now, Gideon's response was, was rightly, no, the Lord should rule over us. But what we see in Gideon's life from that point forward is him acting still like a king in some ways. Immediately after he says no to their demand for him to rule over them, he demands tribute. He demands them to pay him for what I had done for you over the, our, our enemies, the Midianites. He, he sets up this kind of religious idol in, in his city that chapter 8 says eventually caused all of Israel to, to worship after it, to pursue it rather than God. Gideon marries many women. Again, kind of this common practice of what a conquering king would have done. He had 70 sons with all of these wives, and chapter 8 even ends with but telling us that Gideon had this, this concubine in the town of Shechem. Basically, a concubine would, would be a woman that had less rights than a wife who really more or less existed for just a man's sexual pleasure. But from this concubine came this, this man that's before us today in Judges 9, a man named Abimelech, a name which meant, my father is king. If that doesn't tell you what Gideon's, where Gideon's heart was, I don't know what else will. He named his son with a name that says, yeah, I'm king. See, though Gideon showed great faith, though he was greatly used of God, he obviously was in no way perfect. And his life shows us more, not something that we aspire to. It's not that let's be more like Gideon, but it really, through even his life, shows us more the sovereignty of God to work all things according to the, 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 the purpose of his will in spite of sinful humanity. Gideon's life should show us how great and gracious and powerful God is even when we're all he has to work with. But still, even from Gideon's life, we learn that how we lead, that how we live, it, it matters. It, it matters and it affects the lives of those around us. In the case of Israel, and in the case of one of Gideon's own sons, we see that wandering, we see that straying and that forgetfulness that Gideon started to show that trickled down even into the life of some of his family and eventually into the nation itself. Again, the question before us this morning from the text is how can our hearts remain committed to the one true covenant-keeping God when our hearts are so inclined toward forgetfulness, toward wandering and idolatry. I want to give us from our text today three actions to take, which are going to, I, I believe, guard our minds and hearts that we see here. So, so, so three actions. Action number one, don't presume to speak for God. Let God speak. Don't presume to speak for God. Let God speak. Let's see where this comes from. And chapter nine takes us to this time following the death of Gideon. So Abimelech, following the death of his father, sees this opportunity to seek power for himself. 
Now, up to this point in Judges, how were the judges uh, affirmed or appointed? It was, they were chosen by God himself. But, but here we see a shift, a change. We see now Abimelech seeing an opportunity and not waiting, but now going. I'm going to seize power and control on my own. He does so, if you heard in the story, through violent and evil means. He eliminates his entire family. But notice in the first couple of verses how Abimelech wants to almost speak for God as he calls on the people in the city of Shechem to anoint him as king. Look at the first two verses again. It says, Now Abimelech, the son of Jerubbaal, went to Shechem to his mother's relatives and said to them and to the whole clan of his mother's family, Say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you, that all 70 of the sons of Jerubbaal rule over you, or that one rule over you? Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. Now, what's he saying here? What's he doing? He's coming to the the people of Shechem, and he's presuming to know what's best for them, what's best for God's people. Did you you hear him say, which is better for you all? He's saying, wouldn't it be better? Wouldn't it be better if I were king. And then, then he uses this manipulative tactic. Re- remember, I'm one of you. I'm from Shechem. Abimelech's mother, like we said, was this concubine from this town. So he, he's coming to them and appealing to them and saying, wouldn't it be better for you all to have someone in charge, someone in control who you know, who's from amongst you? Wouldn't this benefit you more? See, again, he's presuming to know what's best for them. Rather than waiting for God to decide and God to to, to choose and to anoint, he says, nope, I know what's best for you. Does this not remind us even of the temptation that Adam and Eve faced from Satan himself in the garden? Satan, in chapter 3 of Genesis, slithers into the garden. He comes to Adam, he comes to Eve, and says something kind of similar. Wouldn't it be better to know what God knows? Well, he's keeping something from you, Adam. He's keeping something from you, Eve. He's being withholding. Wouldn't it be better for you? Wouldn't it benefit you more to, to know what that is and to take that power yourself, take that control upon yourself? Satan, in Genesis 3, the temptation was this appeal to this desire that we all hold and, and have in our hearts ourselves of self-centeredness, of self-autonomy, a desire to be in control, to be powerful, or to at least manipulate or control who is in charge. That's exactly what Abimelech wants himself, and it's what he knows the people of Shechem desire as well. Because the human heart is the same no matter who you are or where you live or what culture you live in. That's why God's word is so amazing. It can speak into any culture at any time at any place because the human heart's the same. We are self-focused creatures. And so he, he appeals to that desire. Wouldn't it be better? Which is better for you? Have we not seen throughout human history through corrupt leaders who seek power for themselves? We've seen this time and time again. They presume to know what's best for everyone. If you were to study the, the life of one of the most evil men to ever live, Adolf Hitler, you see that to, for him to gain the control that he had, to gain that power, he first had to, to win over the people by appealing to their desire to be first, to be uppermost, to be significant, to be better than everyone else. And once he had gained that acceptance, he presumed continually to know here's what you need. Here's now what the rest of the world 
needs. His anthem was often cited as, as, as one people, one empire, one leader. He once said, I am acting in the sense of the almighty creator. He says, I am fighting for the Lord's work. Do, do you hear that in him? I know what's best. I'm, I'm acting on, on behalf of God himself. And he was speaking and saying that line in the context of his extermination of the Jewish people. Look how evil this is, but he presumed to know what's best. He was the one, he believed, who spoke for God and told the people, this is better for you that I lead. And we, of course, know the carnage and the evil that unraveled. When we presume to speak for God, to, to know what's best. I, I understand that nations are most likely not going to crumble like what we saw during World War II, but, but our lives and the lives of those around us will be negatively affected. See, to grow in grace and to keep our minds and hearts fixed on the one true covenant-keeping God, we must learn to listen and let God speak. Think of the common ways this is maybe applied in our lives. When someone hurts you, whether it be through their actions, their words, their demeanor, what does God's word say? We, if you grew up in, in the church and you know God's word, you know where it points us to. Forgive. Show kindness. We know Ephesians 4.32 says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. There's God speaking but what goes through our minds in those moments when we face hurt, when we face betrayal, is, is the thoughts of, wouldn't it be better to hold on to the anger? Wouldn't it be better to hold on to the bitterness, to hold on to the resentment? Wouldn't it, wouldn't it feel better to think how much better I am than you? That, that, that person who harmed you, I'm so much better. That's what we wrestle with. Well, what about this? When we just fall into sin itself, what does God's word say? It calls us to confess, to repent, to turn in faith to the cross of Christ. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful. He's just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But in those moments when we stumble into sin, when we fall prey to temptation, what goes through our minds in those moments? Well, wouldn't it be better just to run from God, to hide? Wouldn't it be better for, for me to clean up my own mess through whatever my good deeds are, my re religious actions? Wouldn't it feel better if you somehow could, I could fix the mess because then I'm the fixer, then I'm the savior. Look what I've done. Wouldn't it be better? On and on we could go here. See, when we presume to speak for God, when we presume to know what's best for us, when we presume to know what's best for others, rather than humbly pausing, stopping, and listening to God's word, we bring destruction upon our lives and the lives of those around us. And this results in us wandering and us forgetting God and instead looking inwardly to ourselves to be the Savior that we so desperately need. Don't presume to speak for God. Let God speak. Action number two is to compare and contrast God's ability with man's inability. Maybe you've heard it even said this way uh, in the past. Uh, we we want to look at God's faithfulness and compare it with man's unfaithfulness. But we want to look at God's ability and compare it with man's inability and see which comes out on top. 
Even though the story of Judges 9 is this telling of, of Abimelech and Israel's unfaithfulness, like I said earlier, woven throughout the narrative is this thread of, of God's covenant faithfulness, which is seeking to remind the people and the readers of this text of God's steadfast love and his deliverance of the strong tower in the midst of brokenness. But, but to see it, you really need to know a little bit of God's history, even with Israel, up to this point. It's why it's so important that we are students of God's word, that, that we've got to dig in and, and, and figure out what is God saying and mine the depths of it. Because the more that you unravel, the more that you see through the text, the more beautiful and amazing it becomes. We've, we've got to take the time and the effort to work through the text to see what is the, the author seeking to show us about who God is. Because woven throughout this text, we see God's covenant faithfulness everywhere. There are certain things I believe the author is doing to, to point these things out as almost signposts along the way. For example, the town of Shechem is highlighted here. The, the town of Shechem has served a, an important reminder in, in, in Israel's history. In Genesis chapter 12, God comes to a man named Abram. This is his name before it was changed to Abraham. But comes to Abram and he makes this promise to him. And it's a promise that's extremely significant in the life of Israel and the nations. God comes to him and promises, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make of you a great nation. And God promises him and this people a land where they will dwell with their God. That they will be his people, and that through them, all the nations on earth will be blessed. A, a monumental promise that we read in Genesis chapter 12. So Abraham, in faith, receives this promise and begins to travel toward this land that God says, I'm promising to give you. And so in Genesis 12, he right before he enters or gets to move into the land that God was promising him, in Genesis 12, he stops, and God once again confirms this covenant, confirms this promise to him. And notice where Abram is at this moment, in verse 6 of chapter 12 of Genesis, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. Even hold on to that phrase for just a moment. See, it's here, most likely, even at this tree, this oak in Shechem, that Abram builds this, this altar to worship the Lord and to remember his covenant faithfulness. This was a town that held significance in the history of God's people and God's covenant with them. It, it, it was a place that should have been this constant reminder to them of God's promise, of his steadfast love toward them. The town of Shechem was, was in this valley even. It was surrounded by two mountains. One was now named Mount Ebal, and the other was named Mount Gerizim. We read of Mount Gerizim in the text this morning. Both these mountains on either side of Shechem held covenantal significance in Israel's history. In Deuteronomy chapter 27, Moses now, uh, about to lead the people into the promised land, he, he has uh, the, the 12 tribes of Israel separate, and, and some of them are on Mount Ebal, and some of them are on, on Mount Gerizim, and they're facing each other with Shechem in the middle of them, and he, with them, has them recite the blessings and the covenant and the law of God, and to remember the, the blessings that come to those who obey and the curse that comes if we wander and we disobey. It's here on these two mountains that they're reminded of the law, reminded of what God had done for them, how he delivered them from Egypt reminded them of God's faithfulness and steadfast love for them. 
We know Moses doesn't actually lead the people into the promised land. The next leader does, Joshua. So now the book of Joshua is this, this, this um, uh, recording of Israel's um, uh, moving into the land of Canaan, uh, of God defeating these enemies. And Joshua chapter 8, as Joshua is leading the people into this land, as God's enemies are falling around them because God is, is moving and taking them into this promised land, he once again takes the people of Israel on these two mountains to renew the covenant and to remind the people once again do not forget your God at the end of the book of Joshua it's here at Shechem between these two mountains that Joshua calls all the people to himself to remind them here's who God is and he charges the people put away the false gods of the nations of put away the idols of the surrounding nations and if you're familiar with Joshua's famous charge to the people he says choose you this day whom you will serve but as for me my house we will serve the lord if you're familiar with that charge he said that at Shechem he said that at Shechem, and it's here at Shechem between these two monumental mountains that Israel, in response to Joshua's charge, says this in Joshua 24. This is the people of Israel saying, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples. Listen to this. Therefore, they say collectively, we will, we also will serve the Lord for he is our God. This is said at Shechem. Even Gideon in Judges 9 is referred to as Jerob Baal, the name he's referred to here. If you remember from Judges 6, he was given that name because of God's strength and power that, that, that he gave to Gideon as he went and tore down the altar of Baal. In order for Israel to, be, uh, to save, be saved from their enemies, they had to forsake the gods of the, the nations. And so Gideon goes, and the strength and might and power of God tears down the altar of Baal and then was given this name, Jerob Baal, because it's a name which meant not even Baal can contend with God. This is the name that, that, that Gideon held that's referenced even here. All of these things in Judges 9, I believe the author is putting there signposts as reminders to remind the readers of God's covenant faithfulness, but also to show the sadness of the people here who are missing it. They're standing in the town at these mountains where all these things took place and they had forgotten. The actions of God's people here just show how far they've strayed, how severely they have forgotten their God. Instead of being reminded of God's power over Baal in the life of Gideon as he tore down the altars, the people of Shechem give tribute to Abimelech in verse 4, it says, from the temple of Baal Berith. It's a name. This is how blasphemous this is. Baal Berith, this name is literally a name that they gave to this, this false god, which means Lord of the Covenant. How blasphemous this is. Instead of being reminded of God's covenant faithfulness and his deliverance as they stood in this historic town nestled between these two mountains, they instead, in verse 6, make Abimelech king by the same oak where Abraham had built an altar to remind him of God's faithfulness, his reign, and his rule. The same place in, where in Joshua 8, the people of God declared their allegiance to God. He is our God. Here now, just a few generations later, they're declaring their allegiance to Abimelech. The people had forgotten their God. Abimelech seizes power by ruthlessly and violently killing all of his brothers, except for just one who escapes. And it's this brother, Jotham, who in verse 7, he stands on the top of Mount Gerizim, 
to call out the people for their betrayal because of their wickedness. Remember that it was only here a few generations before that Israel declared that they would follow no other but God alone. Now Jotham is reminding them of their desperate and wicked pursuit for them to follow anyone other than God. He uses this parable to try and open their eyes in verses 8 through 15. He says, you trees. He's referring to the, the, the people here as these, these trees who came to this olive tree, he says. And, and they went to this olive tree and said, reign over us. Now, this is most likely referring to them coming to Gideon and saying, Gideon, be our king. But Gideon refused. And so the parable goes that they just kept searching one after another, looking for someone other than their God to reign over them until they settle in verses 14 through 15 with this, this bramble bush. It's referring to Abimelech. See, Abimelech takes power and says in verse 15, as, as he's given this power, take refuge, my people, under my shade. Now, here's the thing. A bramble bush offers no shade. It offers no shade. It's a thorn bush. See, what's the author saying here? He's saying God's people are settling for a leader who cannot truly offer refuge or deliverance, can make promises but cannot deliver. They're standing in a place where God had proven his faithfulness to them time and time again, a place where God had shown, I am your refuge. I can not only say it, but I show it. And yet they instead are turning to someone who's making the promise but can't deliver on it whatsoever. How often is that our story? Is that my story? How often is that your story? Where we no longer recognize, we no longer see man's inability, but rather we just, we settle. We settle for, for the things of this world because it seems good enough. Seems good enough when the God of the universe stands before us through his word, through the person, the word made flesh, through Christ, and says, come find refuge in me. Come find joy that's unending in my presence. Come find life eternal through my son, and we say, no, I'll, I'll chase after something else. It makes the same promises but can't deliver. It's, it's, it's the well-known quote from C.S. Lewis that we are just far too easily pleased. What is it that you need to let go of so that you can cling to something better? We're, we're so inclined, when we're, when we're inclined to look at our accomplishments, to our careers, to our families, to our friends, to our bank accounts, to our intellect, to our skills and talents, to our abilities, to our morality, to find that comfort and guidance and protection for our lives, we must remember that ultimately none of these things, though they make promises, cannot deliver and give our lives what we truly need. None of these things are able to make sense of your life and to give you the hope and deliverance that you so badly desire and need. We're far too easily pleased. We're far too easily captivated and enamored by the shiny things of this world, that if we would just lift our eyes as we sang this morning to behold our great God, we would never come back from it. Because once you taste and see that God is good, there's nothing else in all the world that can satisfy you like he can. If you've if you ever been to um, a, a child's maybe first birthday, like, like um, uh, Maddox, when he first turned one, uh, we had, you know, probably early parent, new parents do, uh, like probably protect, a little bit overprotective that first year, like, okay, no sweets, no sugar, nothing, only healthy. Uh, with Stella, different story, right? But uh, with our first kids, like, oh, we got a garden. So his first birthday party, uh, his first time he really was introduced to cake. 
And uh, so we have this all on video, and he's sitting in his high chair, and everybody's kind of surrounding him. And so we put this, like, cake or cupcake in front of him, and he's like, you just see in his face, he's confused. I don't know what this is. And so he just kind of messes with it. He's kind of breaking it apart, but he's not eating it. I think me or Amy, had, one of us had to go in, up to him and say, you can eat this. And, and we have a video, like, as soon as he puts it in his mouth, you see his eyes like, what is this? Right? Like, it, uh, it was like a, a whole new world was open to him. Right? Like, once you taste and see something sweet, it's like, I, nothing else is, I don't, I don't, sorry, I don't want baby food anymore, right? Like, uh, where's, where's more of the sugar, right? Like, when we taste and see our God, there's nothing else in the world that can satisfy you like he can. Amen. Compare and contrast God's ability with man's inability, and you'll come away desiring a covenant-keeping God. Lastly, and very quickly, action, action number three, uh, that we must take to keep our hearts fixed on God. We'll hit this quick because we've really hit this several times, actually through judges, and we'll hit it several times again, but heed sin's consequences. Heed sin's consequences. What is sin? Many definitions. I'll give you a simple one. Uh, sin is your failure to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's sin. In verses 16 through 21, we read the, the end of Jotham's speech to the people, and he says, listen, uh, listen, if you acted honestly and with integrity in your pursuit of appointing Bimelech, then things will go well for you. But, but then he turns and says, but, but I know you haven't. And, and here's why. Because you just literally murdered my entire family. And you've betrayed Gideon, the one who, who uh, brought deliverance from your enemies. You have not acted honestly and with integrity. Gideon, who delivered you from the hands of the enemy, you, you've now betrayed. And so he's calling them out and saying, you've acted sinfully and with evil intent. So he, he goes toward the end and says, now here will be the consequences, and we'll see these consequences unfold next week. But in verse 20 he says, so let fire come out from Abimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem and Beth Milo. And let fire come out from the leaders of Shechem and from Beth Milo and devour Abimelech. Here's what he's saying. You've chosen sin. You've chosen the path of evil. You're going to destroy each other. Because sin never leads toward a fruitful and joy-filled life. It's never happened in the course of human history. Yeah, there's stories that can be told of temporary pleasures and joys because sin does bring a temporary delight, but, but we know it never lasts. It's deceptive. Unconfessed, unrepented lust, anger, gossip, slander, idolatry, greed will just slowly chip away at your soul. And in the end, it will leave you with nothing. It will devour you with no one and separated from God. This is always the path of sin. If our hearts are to remain fixed on our covenant-keeping God, then we must treat sin seriously and we must fear its consequences if left unchecked, if not repented and confessed. I've shared this story a couple times. I'll hit it quick again, but it's, it's like uh, right after high school, I was tr taking a trip toward uh, down south, and we hit, we'd left during a snowstorm, much like what we're about to experience probably this week. And and I hit a patch of ice, and car f was just spinning out of control on the on the interstate, thinking I was going to die, and uh, obviously didn't. And and but from that point, this is 25 years now removed, and snow comes like when it's snowy out, like I'm. I'm the slow, like, you're the one on my tail honking, wishing I would go quicker, driver. Because I, I, I learn. I'm like, I'm, I'm going to treat this seriously. 
because I remember what it was like 25 years ago uh, turning uh, at 60, 70 miles an hour down an interstate. I'm going to treat this with the respect it deserves. We need to heed sin's consequences. But, but let me close with this, because I want to end with saying, be fearful, um, because we don't live in a state of fear, do we? As believers, we don't live in a state of fear, because ultimately, ultimately, what is more powerful than even the fear of sin's consequences, what's more powerful and more motivating in our pursuit of holiness is the grace and mercy of God, Amen. given to us through faith in Christ. 1 John 4, 18, there is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Through faith in Christ, we are no longer under the condemnation of a holy God. That's that's perfect love, and that casts out the fear of condemnation. We don't walk shriveling and wondering when God's going to squish us. We're we're, we're not going to be punished for our wrongdoing because Christ bore the punishment for us. And so we, we walk in, in, in grace and mercy. That's, that's the love. We, heaven is not filled with people who are, who are fearful of hell. Heaven is filled with people who love and desire God. They want him. Nobody is drawn to the presence of God because of fear of sin's consequences, but because of God's love and mercies for sinners such as us. Ultimately, then, what should motivate us is the grace and mercy and kindness of Uh, a covenant-keeping God who displayed this love through the person and the work of Jesus Christ through his life, death, resurrection. God is the one true covenant-keeping God. He's the only one who can deliver us, who has shown us time and again his faithfulness, his deliverance. And so to keep our eyes, our hearts fixed on him, we must listen as God speaks to us through his word. We must see God's ability, man's inability, We must heed sin's consequences, but ultimately rejoice in the finished work of Christ on the cross, which has covered your sin, which removes your condemnation, and which restores your relationship with him. Friend, if you have not tasted and and taken part in, in God's salvation, of his deliverance, his grace, his mercy, confess, repent, turn in faith to a God who makes promises that backs them up. A God that when you taste and see him, you'll never want anything else. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you this morning thanking you that you are all we need, that there is none other like you. God, we come to you this morning praising your holy name, that even in the midst of, of our sinfulness, of our, our brokenness, of, of so often even our, our acts of rebellion and idolatry, that you are faithful and that you who began a good work in us will bring it to completion, that you are the one who is active at the beginning, throughout the course of our life, and through all eternity. It's you. And so, Father, for for those in here this morning who have not yet tasted of the goodness and the sweetness of God through the, the giving of his son, Jesus, today I pray that they would turn from their sin, that they would repent, and they would turn their heart and their eyes to Christ as the only one who can make them right before a holy God. And so, Father, we pray for, for those here this morning that that's them. For, for the rest of us here, maybe, maybe we've just begun to stray a little bit, to wander a little bit. Maybe our eyes have been more fixed on the things of this world than they are on, on who you are. And so even in these moments here, may we 
May we renew our, our, our love and our pursuit of you. But to do so means there needs to be confession and repentance of where we fall short. And so may we be a people who are continually repenting of our sin and clinging to uh, the cross of Christ and his glory given to us. So God, this is what we ask for this morning. Help us. May you be all that we need. May we be a people then sent in just a moment to declare and proclaim that you are all in all.